We have, of course, been uh, sort of a, a bit of an interlude at the moment as we, as we uh, sort of are journeying through some of the writings of Paul and taking a passage out of, of, of the books that he's written. Remember, we started back in the Gospels and now we've continued on with Paul's writings. And our plan is to uh, just sort of touch on a few of these books and until we return back to the more, our more, um, more conventional way of, um, of verse by verse through our whole book. But for now, we've, um, last week we were in second, uh, First Corinthians, so following on with that, today is Second Corinthians. Uh, as we've been considering uh, the whole situation with the church in Corinth, um, <clears throat> The church in Corinth had been a, a, a church with a lot of issues. It had been a divided church. Uh, there was a lot of problems with carnality in the church in Corinth. Uh, there was problems with doctrines that, that prompted Paul's first letter, uh, which was a rather corrective letter in nature. It sought to correct many of the things and errors that existed and, and to bring them from a, a somewhat carnal or fleshly position into something more spiritual or a spiritual walk. And of course one of the marks of, of a, a sort of a carnal view is the, the sort of party spirit that existed. Some were saying, hey, I'm of Apollos, uh, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul, uh, I'm of Christ. And so you had these sort of factions within the church in Corinth that was causing a lot of strife. And so Paul wrote this corrective letter of 1 Corinthians to address some of these issues. And it's always interesting when something corrective is given, what the response will be. Um, most of the time, how a person responds to perhaps being held accountable for their actions really is an eye-opener and somewhat revealing. And so Paul was keen to find out just what was, how did this go? What happened? And so Paul wrote, and the effect of this was indeed to bring a, it sort of flushed out a few different thoughts from people. Uh, there were those who, who did indeed realize that things needed correcting and, 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 and they received it well. Uh, but there were also those who sort of come up with one of the reactions that often happens in such a case, it was more like, uh, well, who are you, Paul? You, you know, you're not even a real apostle. Uh, and of course, Paul, hearing about this, he wrote 2 Corinthians. Uh, and, and a lot of 2 Corinthians is about uh, Paul's ministry and sort of touches on this area uh, that these, some had brought up saying, well, hey, you're not really a real, real apostle. We don't have to listen to you. 
so the, the first, uh, um, you got a re response back from, from, uh, from initially from Timothy saying, yeah, it went okay, and then he sent a, a, another reply back uh, with Titus. And so really there was a challenge to his apostleship. Um, <clears throat> and uh, remember back, uh, we, we saw it last week in chapter 12, Paul touched on this, he said, are all apostles? Uh, are all evangelists? Do all work miracles? The answer, of course, is no. It's a rhetorical type of question. So Paul, he was an apostle by the will of God. And that's how he starts this, this second uh, letter in uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And so he, he, he touches on this by the will of God. That's what I've been called to be. And I guess the, the bigger question is, what has God called you to be? You might say, well, I'm, I'm Fred, a mechanic by the will of God. Or I'm, I'm John, a fisherman by the will of God. I'm Mike, an electrician by the, the will of God. Well, God has called people into all types of occupations. The important thing is that what I am, I am by the will of God. Yeah, I think that's the, the, the important point at, at, at this beginning of this, this book. I'm doing what God has called me or willed me to do. And that's a great thing when you can say that concerning your life. When you can say that I'm walking by the will of God, uh, he has called me to this for now and so I'll continue in this and, and, and that's really what Paul is saying he is saying I'm an apostle by the will of God and Timothy our brother and so Paul continues through this letter touching on the subject which is essentially the theme of the second letter to the Corinthians <coughs> Excuse me, but for today we're skipping over and we're landing in chapter 12 Chapter 12 of Second Corinthians. And so remember, that's sort of the background of, of the theme of, of the book. But uh, in chapter 12, we, we touch on a few aspects that sort of develop out of that theme. And so let's read the first few verses of uh, chapter 12 uh, of Second Corinthians. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast, Paul says. I will come to... Visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know. God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be, or hears of me, or sorry, or hears from me. And so among those Corinthian Christians, there was what was regarded as those who were putting themselves forward as super apostles. And, and they were talking about many spectacular 
spiritual experiences. They were having visions. They were having revelations. And so Paul has sort of been reluctantly speaking about this since the last chapter. And so here he will go on and he'll speak of his own visions and revelations of the Lord. And so Paul's reluctance is expressed in his opening words where it says, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. So you see, Paul is tired of writing about himself. He would much be rather writing about Christ. But the worldly thinking which made the Corinthian Christians think little of Paul was also making them think little of Jesus, even if they couldn't perceive it. Whether they are of angels, Jesus, heaven or other things, the more common in the New Testament than we think when we hear these words, visions and revelation. Throughout the New Testament, it's mentioned quite a bit. In Luke, we see Zechariah. The father of John the Baptist, he had a vision, a vision of an angel. Uh, Jesus' transfiguration is described as a vision for the disciples. The woman who came to visit Jesus' tomb had a vision. Stephen saw the vision. Ananias experienced a vision. So there's many visions that are recorded throughout the New Testament. And so we should not be surprised if God should speak to us through some type of vision and revelation. But we do understand that such experiences are subjective and they're prone to misunderstanding and misapplication. In addition, whatever real benefit there was to visions and revelations of the Lord, they're almost always limited to the one receiving the visions and the revelations. We should be cautious when someone reports a vision or revelation they have regarding you or someone else. It was G. Campbell Morgan who made the comment, how often people have wanted to tell me about their vision. I'm always suspicious. I want to know what they had for supper that the night before. If people have visions of this sort of sort, they are silent about them. And so we need to be cautious. Yes, of course God can reveal things, God can speak. But it doesn't mean to say every time someone says, thus saith the Lord, that is truly of God. Or how is that applied? And so Paul says this, I know a man in Christ. Now he describes this experience in the third person. This has made some wonder if he's really speaking about himself or not. Is he speaking about someone else? But because he transitioned into the first person down there in verse 7, I believe we can say that he definitely is writing about himself. He's des describing this experience. He's describing just the kind of thing that the super apostles, so-called among the, Christian, uh, the Corinthian Christians, would glory in. This is the thing they would be really... Uh, really spinning their wheels and this is, would be great he described his humble experience but back in uh, um, <clears throat> chapter 11 he did not hesitate to write in the first person no one would think he was glorifying himself as, he, as the super apostle did then but here he's a bit more careful he's doing everything he can to relate this experience 
without bringing any glory or attention to himself. And he gives a time frame of 14 years ago. This dating by Paul does little to help us know when this happened. There's not a a consistent agreement regarding when this was written. There have been suggestions that it happened during Paul's 10 years in Syria, um, during his time in Antioch, or had his stoning in Lystra. Now that could be a Interesting time. He was stoned and they dragged him out of town thinking he was dead. So if there was a time that you'd seem was logical to happen, that he might have sort of passed out and been sort of somewhere between life and death, maybe that's one one place. But whatever it is, Paul put a time frame on it. And it's interesting that he kept quiet about it for 14 years. And now... Reluctantly, he mentions it. He says he doesn't know if he was in the body or out of the body. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? It seems that in his mind, either one was possible. He was caught up into the third heaven, he says. It doesn't suggest different levels of heaven, although this is what some of the the rabbis believed. Paul is using terminology common in that day. Referred to the blue sky as the first heaven, the starry sky as the second heaven, and the third heaven as the place where God lived and reigned. And that's sort of put it in, putting it into a nutshell. And so this such a one, whom we understand to be Paul, was caught up to where God is. And Paul had a vision, he had an experience of, of, the, of the throne of God, just as Isaiah did in, in, in John. It says he was caught up to paradise. He identifies this place, the third heaven is paradise. It's taken from the, the Persian word for, for an enclosed, luxurious garden. Often found among royalty in the ancient world. Have you ever been in one of those places, an enclosed, luxurious garden? Any of those places that I've been to, I'm always amazed that, you know, someone's got enough time to keep the weeds down or whatever, you know, the amount of work that goes on. Uh, But anyway, that's what it's speaking about. Some early Christians thought that paradise was a place where the souls of believers went after death to await resurrection. Some of them even believed that paradise was located somewhere on the earth's surface. You know, and I would agree with that. You know, there is a place on the earth's surface called paradise. Did you know that? There's a place on the earth's surface in New Zealand called paradise. And I know some of you drove past it just this last week. It's a place down there just near Glen Orkey in the, out of Queenstown. <laughs> a rural location called paradise. However, it might feel like paradise in the summer. Probably doesn't feel like it in the winter, uh, but I'm sure that's not uh, what's being spoken of here. He was in this place he called paradise and he heard inexpressible words. Notice words that it's not lawful for a man to utter. Wow, that's an incredible description about what he's hearing. He's, he's describing a, a, this vision. He doesn't relate anything that he saw, notice. He just speaks about what he heard. 
and even that he couldn't write about it. And when we read that, look at that, we realise how different Paul is than most of those who describe their so-called visions of heaven today. First up, Paul was waited, he waited 14 years to say anything about it. And he only said it or spoke about it reluctantly. He does everything he can to, in relating to the story to take the focus off himself. He doesn't bother at all with the descriptions of what actually it was he experienced. Instead, he just says, he says nothing of what he saw. He says of what he heard in that they weren't lawful to utter. You see, there's nothing self-glorifying here. There's nothing foolish in his description or in his experience. So what did Paul hear? <laughs> well, we don't know. They were inexpressible words. God didn't want us to know, so he didn't give Paul, uh, I guess, the clearance or the, the permission, the green light, you might say, to speak. Paul is essentially saying that this uh, nameless man who had the vision really had something to boast about. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. You see, Paul himself really could only boast in his infirmities, is what he's saying. Which is what he did back there in the previous chapter. Paul, sharply but rather humorously, He's contra contrasting himself with those regarded as the super apostles back there. They would not hesitate to boast about the kind of thing Paul was talking about now. And you've probably heard it all before. <laughs> Turn on certain channels or, oh, you know, after six hours of prayer and fasting, I had this vision and God came down and and everything was shaking and, you know, all that stuff goes on. You know, Paul wouldn't be drawn into that. He will not boast of this vision. But at the same time, we sense that it was important for Paul to communicate to the, the Corinthian believers that he really did have such experiences. Often it's easy to think that the only ones who have profound experiences with God are those who, who boast about them con constantly. Paul never did. Yet he certainly had profound experiences with God. The proof of those profound experiences was found in his transformed life and, and powerful, truthful ministry. Paul felt it important to mention this experience, but not to dwell on it. He wasn't trying to sell himself to the Corinthians. In fact, he holds back from his description. If the Corinthian Christians thought Paul was weak and different than the super apostles, that was fine with him. He wanted the, those folks to see the glory of God expressed in weakness. Not to see him as a great, not to see him as a super apostle, but to see the greatness of God. Why was Paul given this vision, we might say? Well, first, perhaps, it was 
He was given it so that you and I would benefit from what God showed Paul. It could be he was given it because what God told him through this vision sustained him through those trials of ministry and enabled Paul to give everything God wanted him to give to all the generations after. There's no doubt this vision helped Paul finish the course. There are times when God will come to you in, in own, your own a private way, private devotions, whatever, and, and will communicate in some way and, and you just know to hold the course. And that's his message for you. Don't give up on that. Verse 7, look at this. And lest I should be exalted. So here's Paul speaking about this great vision. But he says, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Sometimes you can read that and get a bit confused. You read it, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. <laughs> the first time I went to a buffet, you know, a real buffet, you know, I was in America. And my, the pain that came from my stomach has stayed with me ever since. Um, but that uh, is not what Paul is talking about here. It was, a, it was a, a, a messenger to buffet me. Paul's vision was so impressive, it would have been easy for him to just be exalted above measure and, hey, this is me, the great Paul. Paul was not immune to the danger of pride. No one is. The best of God's people have in them a, a, a root of, of pride that's part of our, our, our flesh that likes to be exalted above measure. Now to prevent being exalted above measure, Paul was given something. <clears throat> something to help him. <laughs> A thorn in the flesh. In this, Paul reveals the real reason for telling of his heavenly vision. Not to glorify himself, but to explain his thorn in the flesh. It seems that everyone could see the thorn in the flesh that Paul suffered from. It was no secret. His heavenly vision was a secret until now. But what was the thorn? Some probably thought less of Paul because of this thorn in the flesh. But they knew nothing of the amazing spiritual experience that lay behind it. He says, there was given to me. This is what Spurgeon said. He reckoned this great trial to be a gift it is well put. He does not say there was inflicted upon me a thorn in the flesh, but there was given to me. What is a thorn in the flesh? When we think of a thorn, we think of, of a minor irritation. You know, a thorn, a, a, something sharp stuck in you. A, 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 a prickle or, you know, a spike or something painful. Bashing through a dead gorse bush the other day and um, <clears throat> got some gorse. That's the worst, actually, a dead gorse. Uh, live stuff is not so bad, but the dead stuff's worse because it breaks off, gets down the back of your neck and, and is a real irritant. 
you know what it's like, you get a, a, some kind of thing in your sock or in your boot and, and it, it affects everything. We think of that as a thorn in the flesh, I need to get rid of it. But the Greek translation of this um, <clears throat> of, of the Old Testament uh, in, into Greek, known as the Septuagint, the word used here, uh, scallops actually means not um, scallops that we think of them. Uh, <clears throat> it means something which frustrates and causes trouble in the lives of those afflicted. root word for thorn describes a tent stake not a prickle so there's something here that is, is more than just sort of a, a bit of an irritant it's, it's deeper, harder and, and a whole lot worse than that and it was given to him in a strange way the thorn was both given, ultimately given by God but notice was also a messenger of Satan. Satan probably jumped at the opportunity, God's permission to afflict Paul like this. But God had a purpose in it, and for his own reasons allowed Satan's messenger to keep Paul from being exalted above measure. To buffet me. The word buffet actually means punched. He felt that he was beaten black and blue by this messenger of Satan. It was Alan Redpath made this comment, Paul, punched about by the devil, who would have thought of it? Perhaps you have looked into the face of a Christian who is always smiling, and you never seem, who never seems to have any worry, is always happy and radiant, and as you have thought about your own circumstances, you have said in your heart, well, I wish I were he. He seems to have no problems in life. He doesn't have to take what I do. But perhaps you've lived long enough, as I have, to know that sometimes the most radiant face hides great pressures. And often the man who is being most blessed of God is being most buffeted by the devil. You don't know until you've journeyed in someone else's boots, do you? It's interesting to consider what a counsellor without a biblical perspective would have said to Paul. Everyone's going to visit counsellors these days. And it's true, you know, we, it's good to talk, it's good to discuss, there's a, a good place for that. Uh, but it, we need biblical counsel. The ultimate counsellor is the Holy Spirit. But if you were going to, to get secular counsel, what are you going to find? And you came along and spoke about the stall in the flesh... Imagine Paul goes to uh, such a person and, and talks about this, this thing, this troublesome thorn in the flesh that he has and how he feels weak and powerless to continue on against it. We might imagine the, 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 um, the council would say something, well, Paul, what you need is a positive mental outlook to meet this problem. Or, or he might say, well, the power is within you to conquer over this infirmity. You should look deep, you know, deep within Deep within to that inner man to find resources. Or the counsellor would tell Paul, what you really need is a support group of caring individuals. He might even seek to challenge Paul by saying, if you really had faith, you would be delivered from the thorn in the flesh. 
Now, some of this advice might be good in different circumstances for sure, but Paul will take his problem to the best counsellor of all. And that counsellor will have something different to say. Look at verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He did exactly what he told others to do in time of trouble. Philippines 4.6 Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Right, I'm going to pray about it. In this particular case, he asked three times, Lord, take this thorn in the flesh away from me. I pleaded with the Lord, he says. He repeated this prayer. We might imagine that when the thorn in the flesh first appeared, Paul thought, hey, no problem, I'll just give this to the Lord in prayer. Everything's going to be good. Nothing happened when he prayed, so he thought, well, this is a tough one. He prayed again. Nothing happened. Prayed a third time. He knew God was trying to tell him something. Some think that Paul is using a, a figure of speech that really means much more than three times, and, and, and there, there can be a case made about that, that the figure of speech means many, many more times than three, but we have the word three here, we'll stick with that. God res- there was nothing wrong with Paul's prayer. God respects not the arithmetic of our prayers or how many they are. He doesn't necessarily respect the rhetoric of how neat they are or the geometry, how long they are. Nor the music, how melodious they are. Nor the logic, how methodical they are. But the divinity of our prayers, how heart-sprung they are. Are they truly from the heart? No gifts but graces prevail in prayer. Paul's prayer was passionate. He pleaded with the Lord. Paul's initial prayer was to escape this suffering from the thorn in the flesh, that it might depart from me. Lord, just get this away from me. And we see there that whatever this thing was, Paul didn't want it. And he knew that he didn't have the power to deal with it himself. He just wanted it gone. And that's reasonable. We can understand that, can't we? He was suffering. His first instinct was to ask God to take it away. Surely no one would say, oh man, I've got a big thorn stuck in my leg today. Oh, it's just great to have it there. I'm so pleased it's brewing up. (laughs) No, of course he wanted it gone. He was passionate. He repeated it, repeated the request for deliverance. It wasn't answered. It must have been concerning to Paul. It added another dimension to his trial. There was a physical dimension, that it was a thorn in the flesh. There was a mental dimension, and that it was a messenger of of, of Satan. And it was a spiritual dimension, and that it was an unanswered prayer. It was coming at him from all angles. So what was Paul's problem? What was a thorn in the flesh? Well, we don't know. People have all sorts of ideas of what it could be. Some of those ideas might be correct. But the reality is we don't know. 
And I'm glad we don't. I think there's a good reason that we don't know. Because if we did know, then when we have our own thorn in the flesh, we would just sort of blow Paul's experience off because, oh, well, for Paul it was different, you know. For him it was that. But for me it's different. I've got this problem here. Paul didn't have that. And so I'm special. I'm different, you know, and, and it can't apply. But we don't know what it was. So Paul's thorn in the flesh, unknown, means that we can apply whatever is being experienced as a thorn in the flesh today. What is your thorn in the flesh today? Is there something that is a thorn that you want got rid of? And maybe you're praying, God, just get it out of my life. You can be sure that we probably all have a thorn in the flesh of some sort, maybe in our lives today, right now. Or maybe it's just been removed or just been put there or whatever. But this is not something that we are ignorant of in our own lives. And most of the time we just want it gone. We can become fixated on the thorn and get, getting rid of the thorn. <clears throat> that consumes us. If I can just get rid of the thorn, then oh, I can, life will be okay again. Finally I can get back to normality. Lord, just, can you just get rid of this thorn out of my life? It's impossible to carry on with this thorn. And that's often how we can become so fixated on, on what the issue is. But it could be a different answer. Look at verse 9. So here he is, he's Paul, he's praying, he's prayed three times. He may have prayed more, he might have been fasting. Who knows what he was doing? One thing we know, he didn't want this thorn, he couldn't get rid of it. God, please take it. Uh, nothing was happening, and he gets an answer from God. God says to him this, my grace is sufficient for you. Stop just there for a moment. That's not what you want to hear. I don't want to hear about grace being sufficient. I want the thorn gone. Because no matter how I can hear about this, the thorn is still there. So he gets a message, not necessarily the message he wants. And how often do we suffer the same problem? We get the message, that's not what we want. So we keep praying, or we keep pouting, or we you know, have a pity party, or we become even more engrossed in the problem. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So that's what the message was. That was that's what the answer was to Paul from God. Paul responded, therefore, this was a great word, therefore taking all these things into consideration, therefore, and perhaps that's the watershed in our lives. Therefore, what are you going to do about it? Therefore, are you going to blow that off and keep, you know, banging on about the thorn in the flesh? Find other ways to try and get rid of it? Find other ways to dull the pain? For Paul, he said, Therefore, most gladly will I rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so here's Paul, he gets to this point realising, okay, I'm stuck with this thing. The reality is I don't want it. But God has said, his grace is sufficient for me. He said that his strength is made perfect in my weakness. And as much as I don't want it, there's a purpose and there's a reason. So I've got to get on with it. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Notice, and he said to me. You see, God had a response for Paul, a personal response. The answer was not what Paul wanted, was hoping for or expecting, but God still has, had a response for, for Paul. We often close our ears to God if he responds in a way we're not hoping for. We're expecting. I can think of a few dogs that, that I've had or have who, you know, they can hear the rattle of the food container from, you know, a mile away. But if you're trying to send them up a steep hill to round up cattle in the middle of a hot summer's day, they can't hear a thing. You know, even though they're right beside you, you know. It's like, you know, they're looking around. Uh, and it's a bit like us at times. Hey, we can't often hear when God speaks what we don't want to hear. But here we see that, that God said and had a message particularly to Paul. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, instead of removing the thorn, God had given and would give his grace to Paul. The grace God gave Paul was sufficient to meet the need. Paul was desperate in his desire to be relieved of this burden, but there are two ways of taking away a burden. It can be done by removing the load, or it can be done by strengthening the shoulder, bearing the load. Instead of taking away the thorn... God would strengthen Paul under it, and God would show his strength through Paul's apparent weakness. To do this, Paul had to believe that God's grace is sufficient. We really don't believe God's grace is sufficient until we believe we ourselves are insufficient. For many of us, especially in Western culture, this is kind of a, a bit of an obstacle. We tend to honour sort of the self-made man, and we want to rely on ourselves. We, we can't receive God's strength until we know our weakness, however. We can't receive the sufficiency of God's grace until we know our own insufficiency. As Alan Redpath often said, the end of your rope is the beginning of God. How did God's grace make the difference? Firstly, grace could meet Paul's need because it expresses God's acceptance in us. We receive his grace. We enjoy our, our, um, his, his, his favour upon us. Grace means that God likes us. And that's his position toward us. Grace could meet Paul's need because it was available all the time. When we fail, when we sin, it's, it, it does not put us outside the reach of God's grace. Since grace is given freely to us in Christ, it can't be taken away at a later point because we stumble or fall. When we come to God by faith, through the blood of Christ, his grace is ever ready to meet and minister to our insufficiencies. It's like, oh, sorry, no grace left. No, that's not going to happen. 
Grace is there all of the time. Grace could meet Paul's need because it was the very strength of God. My grace, God says, is sufficient for you. You may emphasize any aspect that you please. The message is, my grace is sufficient for you. Grace is the favor and love of God in action. He says, my grace. Whose grace is it? God's grace. He says, my grace is sufficient. God's grace is enough for me, enough for you. You don't need to top it up with something else. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm so glad that Paul didn't say, well, my grace is sufficient for Paul the Apostle. I may have felt left out, but God made it broad enough. You can be you. It can mean you. There's no limiting words here, there. Through his infirmities, God made Paul completely dependent on his grace and on his strength. Many of us think that real Christian maturity is when we come to a place where we are somewhat sort of independent of God. The idea is that we have our sort of act together so much, we don't need to rely on God so much, day to day, moment by moment. This isn't Christian maturity at all. God deliberately engineered uh, certain circumstances into Paul's life so he would be in constant total dependence on God. Some people see God as sort of a parent relationship. And, and although there's, there's a degree of, of where you can see that, it, it falls apart when, you know, as, as, as a child you grow up and you do become independent from your parents. You, you sort of you move out and do your thing. Once you mature, you know, you become your own entity. And there's a, often a sort of a crossover. I think, well, once you know, I'm a mature Christian, I sort of move out from that sort of reliance on God as I relied on my parents. But how wrong that is. We can't make our own rules in life as if we've sort of moved out uh, from dependent on God. God works through the man who has been wiped clean and turned inside out, his life emptied before the Lord until he is hopelessly weak that no flesh might glory in his presence. Therefore I take pleasures in infirmities. And so in the end, Paul does not resign himself to, the, to his fate. Rather, he welcomes it. He rejoices that God has a plan here. God has, has, has brought this about uh, that God's grace and strength will be made more available and obvious through him. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What a strange thing. You see how that's sort of backward to our natural thought? We would think, well, when I'm strong, then I'm strong. So we go to the gym to get strong so we can be strong. Because I can't do that because of that particular task because I'm weak. And so we, 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 we take that into our spiritual walk and we say, well, you know, if, if I'm weak, then, then, I, then I'm not strong. But the, the point is that when we acknowledge our weakness before God spiritually is when we open the door for God to strengthen us. 
And so to summarise all of this, instead of using his experience to glorify himself as the super apostles did, Paul relates how his whole experience humbled him more than ever. The greatest example of the principle Paul is communicating was lived by Jesus himself. Could anyone on earth be more meek than the Son of God? To be hung on the cross, hung in our place, that he might redeem us from sin. As that point of absolute weakness was met by the power of God, as he raised him from the dead. I wonder if the pressure of the thorn of Paul's life was a reminder of the power of the cross. It was Spurgeon who made this comment. Yet we should never think that in our lives the mere presence of a thorn means the glory and strength of Jesus will shine in us and through us. You can resist God's grace and refuse to set your mind on Jesus and, and find your thorn cursing you instead of blessing you. Without the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, thorns are productive of evil rather than good. In many people their thorn in the flesh does not appear to have fulfilled any admirable design at all. It has created another vice instead of removing a temptation. Words to contemplate, aren't they? For by the grace of God, when I am weak, then I am strong. Whatever that thorn in the flesh is, let us consider Paul's words. <clears throat> let us consider how Paul dealt with that. And may it bring us to the to the point of being able to acknowledge yes Lord when I'm weak then I'm strong your grace is sufficient for me let us pray Father we do thank you we thank you Lord for uh, the reminder that your grace is sufficient it's more than we need for whatever we face in life help us Lord to, to uh, with clarity of mind and thought to embrace that to not put our own a spin on that idea and, and to try and distract uh, our, our, our view of that by some other means, but just to take it as it is, that your sufficiency, your grace, you have provided all we need to deal with the issues of life. Many things we don't want that are in our lives, Lord, help us to keep that in perspective and to look to you, to seek you and to have ears and hearts open to your ministering to us. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you don't limit your grace, your strength, and wherever we're at, Lord, you will work in a life that's open to you. I just thank you, Lord, for the example of Paul, and may it impact our hearts that we might look to you, that we may allow your work, your entrance into our very being, the depths of our heart, to have it your way. May we indeed acknowledge our weakness, but also in you acknowledge our strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just uh, conclude in worship, shall we? And just uh, allow those thoughts just to maybe uh, just embed themselves in our hearts as we consider uh, the words of Scripture and what God was speaking to to Paul, a very real issue. Uh, it, it's not sort of a pie in the sky kind of idea. It's, we, we experience this. We experience the thorn in the flesh. And it can be anything in your life. 
Um, may we approach it perhaps in a, in a way that's similar to what Paul is, how he approached it. Maybe, maybe the, the thorn in the flesh has got out of control. Maybe we've become fixated on it. I'm trying to get rid of it. Maybe God's message is similar to Paul's. My grace is sufficient for you. Let's stand.